Everybody knows the deal is rotten. Old Black Joe's still picking cotton for your ribbons and bows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows the boat is leaking. Everybody knows the captain lied. Everybody got this broken feeling, like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking to their pockets. Everybody. Reassure us that everything is fine. Everyone listening to this show understands that our planet and our culture are anything but fine. Human beings at this time are mostly lost and do not understand the seriousness of our predicament, nor do they understand what's at stake. Probably the most accurate word to describe our spiritual and emotional condition is the word separation. Western culture has fully indoctrinated us into the notion of disconnection, disconnection from ourselves, from the earth, and from each other. Our guest today likes to call our species a species of orphans. Many of you know him as the Grief Walker, and he's Stephen Jenkinson from Golden Lake, Ontario, Canada. He's a teacher, an author, an activist, and a ceremonialist. Stephen deserves a thorough introduction because his work is remarkable, and he's a remarkable human being. Stephen says that orphans are not people who have no parents, They are people who don't know their parents and who cannot go to them. Ours is a culture built upon the ruthless foundation of mass migration, but it's more so now uh, as a culture of people unable to say who their people really are. And in that way, we are relentlessly orphans. Being an orphan culture does not mean that we have no wisdom, but wisdom is being confused in our time with information. Wisdom is an achievement, hard-earned and faithfully paid for. It's not a possession. Not knowing where you're from is not the same thing as being from nowhere, but it does mean that there is work of all kinds to be done. It could be that the only way for successful refugees to make a culture from from the flight that they're involved in is to first be faithful witnesses to what their ancestry now asks of them instead of what it might have fated them to be. Our culture, if a culture it can be called, or all those things we have instead of culture, has come to a time of savage despair, so it seems. We surround ourselves with generations of the debris of refugeehood to fill the hollow of orphanhood. We've become a danger to ourselves 
and a menace to all who will come after us and to the world. We abandon our dead to make our way, and we are mostly singular people. We might now be the twilight of our ancestors' dream. An orphan wisdom, an orphan wisdom, might be the only culture-making thing we can rightly, honorably, or faithfully claim. There's immense grief in knowing this well and going toward it anyway. That grief could be our way of working now, our labor. It could be our beauty also. All of that from today's guest on the Lifeboat Hour. So who is this person who said all this? Stephen Jenkinson teaches internationally and is the creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School, founded in 2010. He has a master's degree from Harvard University in theology and the University of Toronto in social work. He's revolutionizing grief and dying in North America. He himself lives a handmade, off-the-grid life on a farm beside the River of Abundance and Time in the Ottawa Valley in Ontario, Canada. Stephen is redefining what it means to live and die well. Apprenticed to a master storyteller, he has worked extensively with dying people and their families. He's a former program director in a major Canadian hospital, former assistant professor in a prominent Canadian medical school, consultant to palliative care and hospice organizations, and educator and advocate in the helping professions. He's also the author of Die Wise, uh, a Manifesto for Sanity and the Soul, published this year. Stephen is also the subject of a feature-length documentary film, Grief Walker, a lyrical, poetic portrait of his work with dying people. Welcome, Stephen Jenkinson, to the Lifeboat Hour. Man, that is a lot to live up to. I mean, I hope at least part of what you said is true. We'll see. Yeah, we'll find out. Uh, it's on your website, so it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. That would be a good indicator, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I want our listeners to know that we are definitely taking calls today later in the show. <clears throat> and the okay. number to call is 888-874-4888. So please call us if you have a question or a comment for Stephen. Now, Stephen, you're a farmer, and yes. you're intimately acquainted with climate and how it's changing. Yes. When I spoke with you recently and referred to climate change as catastrophic, you elaborated on the word catastrophe, and I wonder if you would do that right now for our listeners, because what you have to say about catastrophe is absolutely the crux of my work, and I believe yours as well. Hmm. Yeah, surely. Um, I, I stumbled on this uh, entirely by accident, which is, you know, so, so many great discoveries have that. That's right. That character. Um, it comes down to this. The word catastrophe, which we now... is use as code for that which should not have happened basically comes to this the prefix uh, is uh, is from an ancient layer of greek and it's a preposition that that um, answers the question where and the answer that it gives kata means down and in so it's some kind of subterranean entry that's what's suggested or or at least subliminal entry Maybe that's underneath the apparent surface, the apparent, the apparent uh, fixity of things. There's this other access, you could say. And then the, uh, the root word uh, is a word that today is used to refer, it's a kind of a technical term for people who study certain kinds of musical phrasings and, and poetic phrasings from days gone by. 
strophe is a kind of is understood to be a, a kind of meter or a kind of arrangement of lines, but it doesn't actually mean that. It its origin is in the oldest layer of the Indo-European uh, language group, and it comes from the activities of uh, braiding or weaving. If you put the two of them together, what you have is a catastrophe is much more accurately understood as a, may, a means of entry into either the subtleties or the mysteries or both of being a human being. And that way in has been established by people before you, and it's understood to be a road or a rope, which are etymologically related words, that has been somehow crafted or woven or braided and that's the way that you follow. If you take all this together, it means there is mysteriously a path uh, into the mysteries of being a human being. The path exists before you. You're very unlikely to meet someone else on your particular descent. But yet, the fact that there's a path there at all suggests that people have come before you on this very road, perhaps for this very purpose, perhaps at times, at least as fundamental uh, or, or, or as um, up for grabs as perhaps our time is. And this is a sign that while you, you are obliged to do much of this work, if you could say single-handedly, you are not obliged to be lonely while you're doing it. You're obliged to instead understand that by undertaking such work, you're participating in a kind of kinship of the soul, if you will, that this very road is a sign of. Your participation in it is your willingness to take up this, this heavy labor of a time uh, you know, that could have been otherwise but apparently won't be. And if you do so, you actually keep the path from being overgrown and weeded into non-existence, somehow keeping up your end and leaving in the air after you a sign that he, certain human beings were willing to proceed accordingly and this mysteriously becomes the, the path for people to follow you who you will never have met. But somehow your example alone might be the inspiration that's the difference between utter despair in times to come and something like a, uh, an obligation to continue. How's that for one word? Well, that is amazing, and, you know, just on that one question, I could talk to you all afternoon about sure. that, but we do need to move on, right. and I thank you so much for that, because it's such a beautiful, beautiful um, articulation of mm. what our obligation is, as you say, right mm. now as human beings on this planet. Mm-hmm. You were a palliative care worker for many years, and I think it's important for us to know how this informs and shapes the work you're doing now. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I've come to call that time in my life um, a time in which I was engaged by a burdensome privilege. I think it's it's a good rendering of it all, it's, it wasn't all fabulous. You know, I worked with hundreds and hundreds of dying people. All of them are dead now. Uh, a good number of their families might be dead as well. And um, and for all of that, you know, it's not it's not necessarily an enlightening experience at all, because I was engaged uh, with working with dying people in a time and place where dying is fundamentally not believed in. Rather, it's a 
you know, at the very least, it's a problem to solve. It's a, it's something to um, hold at arm's length for as long as possible, and all the rest. So, I wasn't actually there to help people die, though I thought that's what I was there for when I got there. I, I learned how deeply naive I was that you can't help people die in a culture that doesn't believe in dying. All you, all that's left to you, if you obey the party line is to corroborate or to be complicit in, in dying people's project to not die at all. And uh, you can be easily seconded into that work of, of, um, of uh, you know, keeping their dying from them by being positive and hopeful and, you know, uh, so-called life-affirming and all of these shell games. When in, fact, in fact, you know, dying people deserve, whether they ask for it or not, they deserve help to die. If they refuse to die, then your job becomes to get them to die, which is, sounds rather aggressive, actually, and, and, but it's a very faithful understanding. For all of that, it was enormous labor, but um, the privilege of it was is that I, I began to see yet again in a, in, a, in a new iteration that dying, our manner of dying, is a kind of prism through which the the light of the dominant culture of North America passes. And on the other side of that prism, on the other side of dying, uh, becomes refracted out into its constituent parts, much like a prism does with light. And on the other side of it, you can actually see much more legibly and lucidly uh, the dominant culture's, you know, frank madness um, that masquerades as... uh, you know, compassion or um, or self-control or mastery or things of that kind. And uh, it's it was a very, very tough taskmaster, I have to say. But it, it tuned me utterly to, among other things, a certain capacity I have now or maybe a preoccupation with urgency. It doesn't actually, it didn't in my case at least, make me feel desperate in any way. But the things that I saw lent to my my days really a sense of uh, urgency that is um you know at times it's relaxed but it's not but there's no time out from an understanding of of um you know what what a time such as this asks of us and and this is my great good fortune is that uh none of the things i learned in the death trade uh somehow were either exhausted or i've gotten on the other side of by not being in the death trade anymore you could say that the principal lessons of the death trade are life lessons, which were very handy at dying, but that's not the only place they appear. Well, I share with you this incredible sense of urgency, and I believe that grief work is the most important emotional work that any of us can be doing right now. But I'm often told that because this culture is so much in denial of grief that no one will come to one of my grief weekend workshops, and yet what I notice is that most people who are awake to our planetary predicament, in addition to carrying many personal losses, are actually drawn to a safe and supportive place where they can grieve, and they often discover that that they've been starving for such an opportunity. I, I wonder what your experience with this has been in terms of grief work. Well, um, I think it's important to say something. Uh, you know, I used the phrase um, the dominant culture a little while ago, and to say a little more about it, um, 
it's it's very useful. It's even mandatory to have a language that is a sort of that that embraces the culture context of these discussions. But you don't find this culture like nailed to the sky or or somehow prevailing when there's no humans around. So that's my way of saying that the the death phobia, which is so prevalent in the in the dominant culture in North America today is found in the behavior of people, particularly how they behave with each other. But it's not to be mistaken for individual character or, or personality flaw or anything like that. It's, it's a kind of default um, range of options uh, that people back into uh, by virtue usually of not approaching the various things that dying asks of them well before it's their turn. If we take that same understanding and apply it to grief, this is what occurred to me at some point in the death trade. To say that the dominant culture is death phobic is not a huge achievement. This is a fairly legible, um, easy-to-perceive dilemma. I think the twin dilemma that comes alongside it and, in fact, enables that kind of phobia is something that I came to call uh, grief illiteracy. And I, I... purposely called it illiteracy because I was trying to suggest by this phrase that grieving is not really a reflex. It's not a, an, an emotional or spiritual inevitability, not in the least. Of course, I saw that there was many a circumstance in the death trade that pleaded for and begged for people to be heartbroken in that moment. And it was far from inevitable that they would be. More often than not, they had to be prodded, helped, obliged, nudged, cajoled in the direction of heartbreak. Uh, When the heartbreak is there, uh, basically waiting for them, you could say. So grieving, then, I came to realize is there's nothing inevitable about people grieving in a circumstance that's bathed in grief, you see. So... Uh, it, the, the fundamental reason, again, is because the grieving was never learned. I don't think you learn grieving from, quote, teachers, per se. In fact, I'm not sure I trust the whole enterprise of teaching as we've come to experience it in this kind of never-ending weekend workshop of self-improvement that has become the West. I'd rather say that the grieving is best learned from grief practitioners, not from grief counselors. Um, counseling has an awful lot to do with rehabilitation, which has a lot to do with, quote, getting on with your life. Grief, on the other hand, seems to be sand in the gears of that very uh, presumption. And grief is more something in the manner of getting it, you know. Of, can, do we have time to tell you a very brief story about this? Sure, go ahead. Okay. Um, I was phoned by a psychologist, which almost never happened, and the psychologist was asking for help which virtually never happened. The dilemma in a nutshell was that they were that a young child of 10 or 8 years old was referred to them for what they called free-floating anxiety. And uh, she said, you understand what that is? And I said, yes. I said, that means the child gets it. And there was this long pause where she figured, I didn't get it. So anyway, she continued, and the problem was that um, you know she had helped this kid come from one anxiety to another and demonstrated to this kid that, that none of the anxiety was rooted in reality and it wasn't necessary. And um, 
And the one that she kept coming up against was his fear that his mother would leave him. And so I said, what did you do about that? Well, I persuaded his, uh, him that nobody who loves somebody would leave them. And I'm thinking, man, this story is not going to end well. I can just tell. <laughs> really? Of course. And uh, I said, and? Well, his mother called this morning. Uh, she's just got her test results from the oncologist. And, of course, she had stage 3 breast cancer with mets to her lungs and so on. And she's being given something in the neighborhood of three to six months to live. And there's this long pause, and I said, and? And she said, well, what, what should I do for the child? And I said, well, the first thing you do is when the child comes to see you, get down on both knees, and you ask for forgiveness of an eight-year-old. Forgiveness for what? Forgiveness for your utterly misapprehended, uh, professionally driven refusal to understand that his anxiety was absolutely well-rooted in something that he involuntarily knew about. He knew something you don't seem to know, which is that people who claim to love you are not going to stay no matter what. And then it might even include, quote, life or God or, or the divine may not stay with you as a sign of its love. In other words, love is very, very ornately articulated in a human being's life, and it doesn't always mean you know, ongoing and comforting companionship. God knows that's true. And I said, the other thing you do with this kid is if, if he needs any kind of help for what you've just done to him, you treat him free for the rest of his life. Mm. So the moral of the story, among other things, is obviously his anxiety was an indication of something that had come to him, some kind of vision, if you want to call it, or, 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 or sentient uh, awareness uh, that his mother indeed was not going to be around for very much longer. And all of this was an anxiety, became an anxiety because his ability, his willingness, and his education around grieving what he had glimpsed was totally unavailable to him. So you could say anxiety is the consequence of the failure of his culture to educate him deeply in the ways of grief. Had it done so, I would submit to you there'd be very little in the way of kind of disabling anxiety, and much more in the direction of a kind of open brokenheartedness that didn't need the event already to happen for the brokenheartedness to occur, that somehow the, the awareness that such a thing was in the offing was enough to, uh, to sorrow him deeply at his young age. And I would call this a skill. You know, the word responsibility literally means to be able to respond that's what he was demonstrating. The problem was he was doing so in a culture that, first of all, doesn't credit um, knowing things ahead of time, obviously. And the second thing it doesn't credit is that there is absolute mandatory skillfulness of the human kind in brokenheartedness or grief that's, um, that's called for in a time like ours. And it doesn't disable you. It just enables you differently. Thank you for that story. Wow. Um, so so important that you told it. Um, you know, an, another thing that, that I heard you say in, in the interview I did with you a few weeks ago and that I've heard you say in other places is that hope is kind of like the crack cocaine in many aspects of this culture, including the palliative care community. And yeah. you talk about the consequences of being hopeful when something is going downward. And I right. would love you to elaborate on that. 
Yeah, you're getting all the high points here, and these questions very good. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> hope, we don't want to waste of course, your time. If you, if you just count the letters, there's four of them, and you know what we say about four-letter words. Right. Right. Hope is, I think, first of all, the dying people I worked with were almost uniformly obliged to be hopeful by the, by the lunatic cheerleaders that surrounded them, which are normally known as family, and, and not sec, even secondarily by the well-intended professional people around them as well. And they were more than complicit in obliging themselves to be hopeful, as if this were life-affirming. The dilemma was, what are you supposed to be hopeful for when you're dying anyhow, becomes the question. So right. the best way to understand how pernicious this hope regime is, is to simply ask yourself, how does a mortgage work? And just coincidentally, the word mortgage, the first four letters, means death, doesn't it? Yep. In French, of course it does. No surprise there. So how does a mortgage work? Well, very simply, a mortgage functions to um, turn your t attention towards the future, towards the not yet, and you're to do without now by virtue of making your payments uh, so that someday in the time to come you'll own your house outright or your car or your life, perhaps. And the irony is that by looking towards the future, you don't actually get to proceed in the presence of this thing that you don't yet own in any really meaningful or life-sustaining fashion. Everything's in the future, which means uh, mortgages are hostile in principle to the present for the sake of some possible future. Hope functions virtually identically. Like you and I are sitting on the phone right now saying, gee, I hope I'm on the phone. Because we're on the phone and we're, it's not really... We're not really in doubt of that. Our hope instantly gestures towards a possible, a likely, a deserved future. And as soon as you're oriented that way, then your ability to, to inhabit the present moment, which I think we can be honest with each other and say, is really the only moment that's granted you. Absolutely. It's the moment in which you actually stand and breathe and imagine and so forth. Um, you don't need any hope to live in the present moment. You, you can be, in fact, hope-free, which is what I've been, you know, pitching for years. Hopeful and hopeless, uh, as I wrote in that Die Wise book, are really two brands of cola on the shelf at Walmart, the alleged choice. It's not a choice at all. Hopeful and hopeless are just oscillating between two fixed places. You don't really have any choice in those. One is just a recovery from the other. Hope-free, on the other hand, I'm trying to say by that word, is that you have not only the opportunity but probably the obligation as an older person to proceed minus the requirement of a future, a guaranteed future, a happy future, an assured future. You have an obligation as an older person to proceed without that kind of assurance to proceed to do important work because you're able to do it now with no assurance that it's going to cash out for you or for your community or for anyone you love or for the world. Yeah, I think this is what's asked of us now. We, rare, we basically don't ask that of dying people. We ask them uh, to always imagine a better day coming for themselves. And... Uh, and they don't get to be dying in the present. They're always dying in the future, which, of course, is an 
is a demonstrable lie because the present is the only place that you're dying in. And I could never get dying people to change the tense of the word from I'm going to die, which anyone can say with no risk to their health or their peace of mind, to I'm dying, present tense, which I can assure you changes everything in a heartbeat or should. So I think we, we have an obligation given the trying times that we are clearly in and which show no sign of abating, but of clearly accelerating, that hope is no longer required to be a responsive, uh, intact human being who is detonated by the, by the sorrows of their time period. You can't, you, you can't be hopeful, really, and be engaged. And the people who require hope in order to do the heavy work, to be honest, are not really doing the heavy work. They're doing it on the installment plan, you know, as long as they feel inspired. But we have to proceed minus inspiration now. Uh, I think that time is not this time. It may come. I don't know. I'm no fortune teller. But, um, but I know for the, for the current um, installment, we have so much sign. I mean, you were playing Leonard Cohen earlier, my, my great countryman, and such a, such a faithful recorder of our particular tragedies. And he said, in a song called The Future, he said something like, uh, there'll be a breakdown of the ancient Western code. Your private life will suddenly explode. There'll be phantoms, there'll be fires on the road, and the white man dancing. Which is a fairly apocalyptic vision in many ways, uh, but it's not really a future tense situation anymore. The breakdown of the ancient Western code is in full effect. Absolutely. And it's one of the things that makes so many of us feel either um, in danger or without a particular guide or indicator of what must be done. And his next line, your private life will suddenly explode. Well, actually, I would say that that would be an indication of a very good period in that all the, all the bad deaths I saw, which were legion, frankly, every one of them was typified by the belief that they were somehow the personal possession of the person who was dying, mm-hmm. that it was their death, when in fact all of the consequences of how they died did not accrue to them at all. They accrued to the people who, do, who were not dying at the time and who were left behind after they died. You could say all the consequences of a bad death last much longer than the dying and the death does, by far. And, um, and they were very private, all those bad deaths, very small and very corroding of the kind of community spirit or what I call a sense of village-mindedness. All of these things were casualties of dying badly. And I think Cohen's line anticipates just such a development that, um, that may be a sign that things are un- underway um, where things could be otherwise, one of the signs is your private life will suddenly explode, which means something more like your communal life, your, your, your village life, may yet come to prevail. Uh, it's something we have to earn in North America because we've basically all lived our lives minus such a thing, really, as a functioning thing. And we, you know, devolve to the family as the basic unit of life, which is why... There's so many divorces and all the rest because we ask way too much of families. So all of which, sorry, this is a very long-winded answer, but um, 
all of which is to say that hope is has not earned its keep as a life-affirming proposition. Uh, the way you affirm life is by affirming the present. It doesn't mean agreeing with it. It doesn't mean approving of it. It means testifying to it, it, it seems to me at least. And I thought my job in the death trade came to be being a faithful witness to what I was privileged and burdened to see. And like with that eight-year-old I told you about, and perhaps with yourself and perhaps with many people who are listening, that this is our responsibility now is to not blink. And you can keep your eyes open without being hopeful in order to do so. Thank you so much for that. And I would like to remind listeners that you can call us with a question or comment for Stephen at 888-874-4888. We'd love hearing from you. And Stephen, I'm going to ask you a a kind of two-part question. Um, I'm sort of combining them here. Much of your work involves helping people connect with what you call the unseen world. And I'm very fond of saying that while the rational mind and the human ego are necessary and very important for our development from childhood to adulthood, they cannot help us deal with what I like to call the big five, love, death, suffering, eternity, and the sacred. Would you care to comment on that? Well, I don't really know what the phrase deal with should mean. Uh, I, I don't... I don't come to life as something to be, quote, dealt with, or, and I certainly don't come to the mysteries of life as something to be, quote, solved. And, right. I, and I'm sure you'd probably agree with this, that I do. the more you learn about the mysteries of life, the more mysterious they become. Right. They don't become suddenly your, like, sit in your lap as a poodle for you to command. Quite, quite the opposite, maybe. Exactly. But the more mysterious they become, the more, in some sense, addled you, you can be by how mercurial and non-human the deep mysteries of human life actually are. I don't mean anti-human. I simply mean they don't obey us. I thank God for them and for us that they don't. So dying would be one of those what I've come to call human-scaled mysteries. It's a very... These mysteries are knowable, the mysteries of dying in particular, but they aren't much known and that would be, I think, a, a, an important distinction to make for any discussion about them. So I, I guess I, I think of it this way. You know, as many times as we sit down to eat, I don't think it happens very often that we go, oh, no, not this again, meaning eating. Each time you eat, particularly if you're blessed with hunger, you know, some part of you is reveling in this more or less as if it were the first time. That's an amazing thing uh, to come to you so many times in a lifetime, you know, until it doesn't happen because you have terrible digestive problems or whatever it might be. Well, and it's the same thing with coming across mysterious things that simply don't give in to your adamant insistence on understanding everything and being in control. That when, when you come to mysteries, I don't think a mystery is anything... Is, is a problem for your mind or your spirit to solve any more than a good meal is a problem for your stomach to solve. It's a, it's a privilege uh, to be mystified uh, because, it, first of all, it, it, gives you, it gives your kind of in-control self an opportunity to relax for a minute. Uh, 
even though it's not seeking it. And secondly, it says something in the order of, you know, your job is not to be on top of all this. Your job as a human being is to proceed in the presence of these things as a kind of junior partner in the great scheme of your days, that you're on the receiving end of the enormous privilege of being alive, but you're certainly not in the, in the masterful end of that very thing. The, more, the most masterful people I was ever lucky enough to be close to were masters of tragedy, first and foremost. Not to say that they were in control of tragedy. Rather, they were master practitioners of tragedy. They understood that, you know, the fundamental grief that informs being a human being who's alive and alert. Um, one of the things that came to me not that long ago, you know, that I'm... I'm I'm a child of the West. The West is absolutely punched drunk with the idea of enlightenment or nirvana or sudden realizations and awakenings and the rest. And it seems, you know, if you read the fine print of all of these claims for total immersion, for total transformation and all this stuff, you read the idea that this will be inherently good for you, you'll enjoy it when it happens, and you will be unspeakably thrilled. And uh, it's only upside. (laughs) <laughs> but I've I've come to, it's come to me, I should say, I guess, that if you awaken in our time, to our time, you will more or less inevitably w- awaken with a sob on your lips, not with hallelujah. And I think that sob is absolutely mandatory now because it, it, it's maybe one of the few reliable things by which we can chart our course now that when you awaken to the, the times such as we find ourselves in, you become trustworthy as perhaps an elder, or at least an elder in training, because you're heartbroken by the conditions of your time. Not, I guess say it again, not disabled, okay? I'm not talking about, um, you know, torn limb from limb and useless. I'm saying that heartbrokenness is a sign that you have awakened unto your times and vice versa, you become somehow, I think, reliable to people half your age when you can testify to that kind of, of sorrow that knows, you know, that, it, that other times have been otherwise. But our particular time, as they call it these days, they call it the Anthropocene era. The irony of the Anthropocene era, meaning that it's a human-fashioned world we live in now, the irony of that is that we can't escape the consequences of our own, you know, delirium, our own mastery, uh, our own self-governance, and our own um, inventions. We can't actually escape them. And I would say for all of that, the irony is that probably as a, as a people, we have never been more lonely as human beings than we have when we've been born into this Anthropocene period. I want to ask you more about the Anthropocene a little bit later. Um, we have a, a person on the line right now. We have Perry from New Jersey. Go ahead, Perry. Hi, Carolyn. Uh, Perry from New Jersey. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for this conversation. I guess I have two inquiries. Um, first, regarding hope. I, I'm in total agreement with what you said about hopium and you know the misplaced nature of hope in Western culture. But I'm wondering, is there a trans? or transformation of hope that 
when one stands back and looks at this 14.8 or whatever it is billion year unfolding of the universe and realizing that that a small hope is rooted in the story of separation, but there can be like a big hope that still gives one the sense of belonging and purpose standing in the light of this as a speck, but in the light of this unfolding creation. So I find like a lot of hope in that. It's a different kind of hope. And then just the the other thing is, um, with regard to your last comments about lament and, and sobbing, I'm in agreement with that. And I'm also finding joy on the other side of that. So, you know, it's like weeping lasts for a season and joy comes in the morning or there's a different quality of, of joy that comes in, 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 in that grief. Or in, I've certainly experienced that in my own life. So I, I don't want to, I, you know, I, I want to be careful not to say it's either this or that. It's either hope or no hope. It's either sorrow or, or nothing. So those are just a few comments. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. Well, well I understand uh, his his desire to want to rescue hope. I mean, a lot of people are trying to do it uh, by recrafting a, a kind of semi-hope, or you know, or, or or retooling the content of the hope, and somehow retaining the idea that hope could inherently be a good thing to keep around. You know, like in your self-storage unit out in the edge of town. What I'm trying to say is. If you look at the consequences of hopefulness, not the content, the consequence of it, the, fu- the actual function of hope turns you away from the present moment. And what I'm pleading for is a realization that to do so makes you part of the kind of, uh, the kind of um, dull-witted um, uh, dilemma that, the, that everybody else has to contend with as you wait for a better day. What I'm talking about, I'm, I'm pleading for workers here, you see. And workers, you can't work in a troubled time, I don't think, authentically, while you're maintaining some hope for, for it. You do so utterly informed by the conditions of the time. That's what you enlist for. That's what somehow, I think, calls you out. And, and retaining some kind of hopefulness is some kind of insurance policy that this work you're doing in the present is underwritten by the real likelihood that it's going to cash out in the future. I'm saying that it would be, all the signs now seem to be that we're going to need workers who are not enamored of the possibility that their work is going to deliver them and theirs from the troubles that we find ourselves in. And I forgot the second half of what he said something. Do you recall? Um, I recall something about, um, you know, uh, polarization between hope and joy that there's... Oh, yes. Oh, no, grief and joy. Yeah. Grief and joy, yeah. Grief and joy. Well, it's it's kind of the same thing again. You know, I said grief. You said grief. Neither one of us said, well, grief, a one-note symphony, you know, as long as you're heartbroken, you don't get to laugh or anything of the kind. This is the deep misapprehension of grief, that it's a synonym for misery or for defeat. It's not this. What, what grief is, is a proneness to life. The problem in, in dominant culture in North America is we're addicted to mastery, you see. We're addicted to competence now. And it's what's got us in the mess that we're in principally, I think. 
And the consequence of that addiction is that the idea you should actually be prone to something seems to be a recipe for being victimized by something. And how many people came to their death as if they were victimized by what was born when they were born, you see. So as long as we try somehow take the sow's ear of mortality and turn it into a silk purse of, of, um, of joy, uh, this is a shell game. It's just, I don't, I don't think, I don't think grown-ups, adults, should be seduced by the idea that you can have all your old understandings of what it, what it, what was needed to be happy, and then graft on these understandings of grief or, you know, the dilemmas around climate change, and that nothing's disturbed as a consequence of this graft. I mean, here's the parallel to my mind. You have a family living on one income. Now the parents separate and divorce. And somehow the mania of our time suggests that everybody's, um, um, what do you call it, standard of life should take no hit because of this separation and divorce. And that there's, but you're still living on the same amount, but now it's two households. So how can you not have any disturbance, fundamental disturbance? And I think by the same token then, you know, to realize that we're not in a time that's benign, that the human being's presence in the world is not a benign presence any longer, that to some degree or other, which, and I'm, I'm no expert and I'm not longing to be one on what forms this is all going to take and so forth, but, but at the very least, all of us can be informed by the idea that we're born to a time that doesn't resemble our great-grandparents' time and requires a different understanding of what it means to be alert and to be an adult now. And I think clinging to old understandings of happiness as a kind of insurance policy against grief is a refusal to be informed by the nature of your time. And I don't mean this in any way personally directed against the person who called. I just mean I understand the plea, and I suppose I'm making a counter plea for a kind of initiated heartbrokenness that includes your capacity to love being alive. In fact, it endorses it. I mean, you may be able to tell by my voice that I'm absolutely a grief monger. Absolutely. And I'm not in any way depressed as a consequence of this. I'm, I mean, I, I'm, I count myself enormously lucky to still be here because the odds weren't, weren't that great at various times in life, as, as is true, no doubt, for people listening too. These things are twins, you know. They're not opposites. Your ability to love being alive, I think, is awakened, is really conjured by the realization that, in short order, you won't be. And, and, you know, you can have some giddiness from time to time over the sheer unlikelihood that you're still around. And giddiness and heartbrokenness, they belong together. They don't elbow each other out of the way. Right. So let's stop trying to, trying to retain uninitiated, outmoded understandings of what good enough is and what happy is. And let them be replaced by something that's informed by the conditions that you find yourself having been born to. That's the pitch I'm making. So I'm going to ask you the question that I was going to ask you last, but, uh, you know, I don't know. This may be our last question because we have only about 12 minutes left. Okay. Um, But you were talking a second ago about... You're saying the way I'm answering, we'll only have one question left. (laughs) I think (laughs) you're right. (laughs) Could be. Uh, And that's okay. 
Um, a moment ago you were talking about human presence, and in our recent conversation you talked about the self-hatred that self-hatred, is running yeah. through some of our extinction and ecological movements, and I heartily agree with you. As a result of this, last year I, I felt compelled to write an article entitled Mad Hominem, Why Hatred of the Human Species is Not Helpful. Mm. And and you say that this kind of self-hatred is just another iteration of the self-absorption we've been engaged right. in within the milieu of industrial civilization for centuries. I'd like to hear more about this. Man, I can rely on you to pull out the heavy artillery here and just yeah, a few questions. That's good. That's good. <laughs> You're certainly not asking me, so how do we fix all this? Thank God for that. No, no, no. No, I'm that's so, not in I'm my so vocabulary, Stephen. I'm so weary of having to refuse to answer such a question. I know. Well, okay, self-hatred, uh, you know, given, given some of the themes that I've just brushed up against in the last 45 minutes, self-hatred would seem to be both inevitable as a consequence of wising up and also somehow mandatory, as if the only legitimate response of a being with a conscience is to descend into this um, purgatorial obligation of utter contempt for you and your like, uh, and for what, you know, quote, we've done to the planet and, and all the rest, that this would be a sign of conscience or a sign of an evolved um, awareness. I don't think this is true at all. I, you look around and really you couldn't find a social project that was rooted in or based upon self-hatred that ever... <laughs> that ever turned into anything that was life-affirming at all. So, this is why the idea of brokenheartedness or grief is, strangely enough, is the antidote to depression. Depression would seem to be an inescapable consequence of awakening to a deeply troubled time. It would seem to be that. And maybe, maybe, there are stages of despair and utter futility and and depression and so on, which might be training wheels, if I could put it this way. It might be preliminary, kind of rookie mistakes. Uh, Understandable and maybe unavoidable in the very beginnings of stirring towards something uh, that your time is asking of you. But none of these things are enabling, God knows. And, um, And not one of them could you claim as a kind of skill that enables you to live deeply or to live well? On the other hand, I would say that grief is an antidote to self-hatred and to misanthropy in a time that seems to beg that you go down that very road of misanthropy, of hatred of the human species and so forth. Misanthropy is a consequence of the Anthropocene period. Maybe that's a good link to make. That the more, um, the more you are obliged to contend with the consequences of what you and your heirs and your ancestors have done, not only to the world, but certainly that's visible there, um, the, the, the greater likelihood you have for disowning them. And the more you disown your heirs and your ancestors as unworthy, the more your unworthiness will crest. And the more that happens, the less likely you are to proceed in a responsible fashion 
uh, and care for the, the little piece of land that's underneath your feet because you will always be informed by, A, what's the point, and B, I can't do anything but destructive anyhow. So what does this inform? It actually, it actually perpetuates the very dilemmas that we've kind of alluded to over the last hour. And the, the antidote, not the solution, the antidote to these things is a willingness to learn heartache, to learn sorrow, to learn grief as a devotional response to, um, to these things that seduce you towards despair. It's a kind of spiritual practice for our time, I would say, to learn uh, the sorrow of that you could have been born into a different, more promising time, but you weren't. And maybe we could infer from this that if you were born to a time such as this, it doesn't mean you're another problem for this world to endure. Maybe it could mean that you were born into such and such a time because this time needed something that was the approximate shape and size and density of you. And maybe you could infer your purposefulness from the fact that you're still here. And if the time is a troubled one, then perhaps you have a, a, an inclination towards a human skillfulness that the trouble could actually use now. And this is not a recipe for arrogance or self-importance, I don't think. It's a recipe for imagining that heartbrokenness is the mandatory precursor for, for stirring towards some kind of maybe self-assigned task uh, in the face of the troubles that, uh, that, that are probably to come. And, and if you were to do so, imagine the real possibility that you will leave in the air a kind of lingering scent that humans in such a troubled time, some of them at least, were willing to stir towards a sense of purpose when they had no outward sign that this made any sense at all. And if we're willing to hold up our end now, minus hope, minus a sign that things will prevail, that we'll get on the other side of this, that everything will be okay, and if there are generations to come of humans, which I'm sure there will be, then who are we likely to be to them? And I submit to you what we could be to them if we keep up our end now is we could be of a generation of humans that they in time to come would claim as ancestors worthy of descending from. That's basically the plea I'm making. Stephen, we didn't have time today to talk about your book, Die Wise, but I want to highly recommend it to everyone, Die Wise by Stephen Jenkinson. If you want to learn more about his incredible work, you can go to his website at www.orphanwisdom.com. And uh, I want to thank you so much, Stephen, for being with us today and for the incredible deep wisdom that pours out of you in your writing and in your speaking. Thank you so much. You're very kind to ascribe that to me. All I'm really doing is remembering the things that were entrusted to me by all the people I met before me. But I'm willing to take it on the shorthand that it part, partly does come from me, but I think we both know that we're just passing stuff along that we're lucky enough to, that came to us. Eh? And I Absolutely. sure appreciate your invitation to come and be on your show too. 
You're well. You're very welcome. And uh, I want to let everybody know that we'll be back again next week with Richard Heinberg to talk about the end of economic growth and the plummeting of oil prices. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you again next week right here on the Lifeboat Hour. Everybody knows the deal is rotten. Old Black Joe's still picking cotton for your ribbons and bows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows Everybody knows the boat is leaking Everybody knows the captain lied Everybody got this broken feeling Like their father or their dog just died Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem rule Everybody knows Everybody knows that you love me, baby Everybody knows you really do Everybody knows you've been faithful Give or take a night or two Everybody knows you've been discreet But there were so many people you just had to meet Without your clothes Everybody knows Everybody knows Everybody knows That's how it goes